0: Welcome to the Occult London Podcast. This is a podcast dedicated to exploring magic, mysticism, the Kabbalah, as well as other topics. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, please take a moment to leave us a review and a rating on iTunes or wherever you tune in. It really helps more folks find us and helps us to continue to get this message out there. Also, don't forget to check out occultlondon.co.uk to subscribe. And if you're feeling extra supportive, consider backing us on Patreon or you can also uh, find us on Buy Me a Coffee. Every little bit helps in going a long way and keeping this show alive. And a heartfelt thanks for all of your kindness and support, and a Happy New Year. Now let's dive into today's episode. In today's episode, I wanted to continue our history of magical talismans and amulets by taking a little look at magic and talismans from the oldest period of human history, that of the prehistoric. And this is a period that we have no written records about, but where we, where the first seeds of spiritual consciousness really would have been sown within our species of humanity and this period spans from about 2.5 million years ago with the earliest human ancestors to roughly 2500 to 5000 years ago uh, ending really with the advent of writing systems in different regions It's during the Upper Paleolithic period, which is circa 50,000 to 10,000 years ago, that scientists generally agree we begin to see the the appearance of modern-day Homo sapiens. We see the beginnings of sophisticated tools and also the earliest forms of art and symbolic behaviour. And it's also during this time that we begin to witness a remarkable surge in the evidence of religious practices. And guiding these ancient rites would have been shamans who were spiritual leaders endowed with an ability to traverse altered states of consciousness and also venture into the spirit realms. And they are described by Tom Cohen as follows, and I quote... Just as twilight is neither dark nor light, but a bit of each, so is the middle, head, face or person, representative of that magical blend of two opposing energies. The shaman is the twilight child, born from the union of the masculine world of light and the conscious awareness, and the feminine world of darkness and unconscious awareness. Shamans are at home in both worlds, in that magical space and time shimmering between these worlds, that point of consciousness betwixt and between, and neither this nor that flickering at the edge of twilight. That's a quote from Tom Cohen about the shaman. Although the religious practices of this era um, would be very different from what we recognize today, uh, they would have laid the groundwork for a variety of different belief systems that will kind of gradually unfurl throughout human history. And it's during the Paleolithic period that we find a lot of evidence of humanity uh, beginning to bury their departed rel- relatives in quite complex spiritual ceremonies with treasured possessions, which obviously you know, reveal a deep-seated spiritual incarnation and these rituals often also give us a kind of captivating glimpse into how our ancestors would have practiced religion and magic and also how they were devoted and also their kind of connection to nature and connection to the spirit realms beyond the tangible world. Interestingly around 12,000 BC which coincided with the advent of the Neolithic revolution, um, religious activities kind of begin to undergo a major transformation when people began to actually do farming and kind of agricultural activities and these practices evolved from being fragmented and varied to becoming more organized and systematic where people would less be likely to be kind of more nomadic and following you know um, more kind of hunter-gatherer type communities and much more they're likely to settle in one place and actually put down roots and uh, actually start planting their own crops etc and working around the kind of harvest calendar and we also see at that period a fundamental shift in terms of the increasing prominence of ancestor veneration um, both at a personal but also as a community level so we see stone structures such as Stonehenge in Britain which I definitely would recommend people go and check out if they haven't done if you if you do come to the UK definitely try and visit Stonehenge it's an absolutely fantastic and magical place but these become really significant fixtures in religious observances and also kind of that they're very important from the point of view of kind of magical practice we believe as well and although the precise beliefs of our ancestors you know what they actually did there remain quite a mystery um, until the advent of, of written language the development of writing systems during the Bronze and then the Iron Age begins to mark a turning point in our understanding of ancient religions and societies can now also articulate their religious beliefs and rituals better which paves the way for us being able to kind of understand the past in much more detail. And it's interesting to see how the practices of these ancient societies continues to influence many modern religions and pagan traditions, the evolution of religion and magical practices and their enduring impact on our world today kind of really give us a a view of the human experience. And you know despite the passage of huge amounts of time, we do find that a fascination with the spiritual realms remain. Um, and it kind of really gives us a testament to that enduring aspect within the human consciousness for uh, religious experience, for spiritual experience. One of the earliest manifestations of religious practice um, is cave art and prehistoric individuals often adorned the, the walls of caves with depictions of animals, humans and symbols and these paintings would likely have held religious significance as many portrayed animals that were considered sacred or had significant meaning. So for example, the cave paintings in Lascaux in France feature amazing images of different animals, horses, bison and deer, which undoubtedly would have carried great importance for their creators. And these cave art creations almost act as magical doorways offering us a glimpse into this long forgotten world and really a kind of perspective of how our ancient ancestors would have lived and you know what they felt as well the prehistorian John Klotz um, who's an expert on Lascaux cave paintings wrote sometimes art is intended not for other humans but for one or more divine beings aimed at establishing a bond of one kind or another with the netherworld. It may serve to recruit the powers of spirits or gods believed to reside in the rock or in the mysterious world beyond the permeable boundary that the rock wall forms between the universe of the living and that of the fearsome supernatural powers." Another significant aspect of prehistoric religion would have been the reverence for the natural world and our ancient ancestors lived close to nature and relied on it for survival and this would have fostered a really deep respect for the power of nature but also a, a deep fear as well because nature would be have the ability to make you live or die. An example of this can be found in Catalhoyuk in Turkey which is a, a Neoloth- Neolithic site dating back to approximately 7500 BC and at this place the Neolithic people constructed shrines which were dedicated to the bull worship symbolizing strength and fertility and these bull shrines it's basically like a small room or an alcove house the remains of bulls along with various different artifacts and adornments Balls were revered as being the embodiment of fertility, power, but also a symbolic link between the human and the spiritual realms. So they would have played a very significant role in the religious and cultural beliefs of the people living in that region. And as part of their connection to nature and reverence for the spiritual powers surrounding them, people of this time also created talismans and amulets and these these sacred objects crafted from bones of ancestors, um, animals, stones, leaves and herbs and would have been believed to embody divine energy and also serve as dwelling places for spirits or gods. Anthropologists studying the origins of religion have, have noted similarities in magical beliefs across early cultures worldwide particularly in terms of earlier ideas and also metaphysical and religious thoughts. And ancestor worship and adoration of the dead would have played a really vital role with many ancient cultures you know, recognising the influence the departed ancestors could have on the living, either positively or negatively. And also they would have believed that everything in the world, animate or inanimate, would have possessed a soul or a spirit and this perspective aligns with the worldview held by many indigenous peoples where essentially everything is regarded as alive and infused with spiritual power rocks trees and even objects like you know houses or cars that we, we use these days would have been seen to have had a spirit or a soul the deities that they venerated would have been seen as embodiments of these spirits, representing forces like the wind, the rain, the stars and the earth or the sun itself. An animism, the belief system characterized by attributing spiritual essences to things. Although some people think of it as being a kind of primitive, um, viewpoint, uh, it's actually a really profound understanding of the interconnectedness and interdependence of all elements in existence. It really reflects deep appreciation for the integral fabric of life and spirituality where everything is sacred, everything that we experience in our lives is profound and important. As D. H. Lawrence wrote, In the oldest religion, everything was not supernaturally but naturally alive. There were only deeper and deeper streams of life, vibrations of life more and more vast. So rocks were alive, but a mountain had a deeper, vaster life than a rock. It was much harder for a man to bring his spirit or his energy into contact with the life of a mountain and so he drew strength from the mountain as from a great standing well of life than it was to come into contact with the rock. And he had to put forth a great religious effort for the whole life effort of man was to get his life into contact with the elemental life of the cosmos, mountain life, cloud life, thunder life air life earth life sun life to come into the immediate felt contact and so derive energy power and a dark sort of joy this effort into sheer naked contact without an intermediary or a mediator is the root meaning of religion that's a quote by uh, dh lawrence about the kind of animistic viewpoint. But the animistic viewpoint also holds tremendous significance when we're considering the development of magical thinking and talismanic magic, especially within the context of our ancestors' lives and the challenges they faced. In the Stone Age, hunters relied on nature and its resources for survival. I would have forged a close relationship with it and adapted to its demands. And it's likely that, much like other hunting societies worldwide, they would have believed in the souls of nature and its creatures and as a result they would have sought to connect with benevolent spirits whilst protecting themselves from evil spirits by employing amulets imbued with mystical properties. And a central figure in this animistic worldview would have been the shaman who played a really crucial role in the early cultures and the shaman or the tribal priest or the you know the wise man or woman of the village would have served as an intermediary between the tribe the powerful spirits of nature and the ancestors it's most likely that these people would have had some kind of natural psychic abilities and would be able to traverse the realms of the living and the dead. And you often find, if you if you read the accounts of being um, training to be a shaman, um, it was often not necessarily seen as being a positive thing. It would often be more like a kind of curse, but it was a path that you had to actually take. You had to train to be a shaman, um, to rid yourself of, of that particular um, illness. And they would have, um, yeah, basically sort of traversed between the different realms and communed with guardian spirits of the natural world and also the living and the dead. And Terence McKenna describes the shaman's role as a kind of like a psychopomp that travels between the worlds, stating, The shaman is a person who is able to transcend the dimensional confines of cultural existence, They know more than the people they serve. The people they serve are like children within the game of culture. Only the shaman knows that culture is a game. Everyone else takes it seriously. That's how he can do his magic. The shaman's role is also described by Michael Drake in his 2012 shamanic drumming book as follows shamanism is a way of perceiving the nature of the universe in a way that incorporates the normally invisible world where the spirits of all material things dwell shamans have different terms and phrases for the unseen world but most of them clearly imply that it is the realm where the spirits of the land animals ancestors and other spiritual entities dwell Spirit encompasses all the immaterial forms of life energy that surround us. We are woven together into a net of life energies that are all around us. These energies can appear to us in different forms, such as spirits of nature, animals or ancestors. The spirit world is the web of life itself. Shamanism represents a universal conceptual framework found among indigenous tribal humans. It includes the belief that the natural world has two aspects ordinary, everyday awareness formed by our habitual behaviors, patterns of belief, social norms and cultural conditioning. And a second, non-ordinary awareness accessed through altered states or trance or induced by shamanic practices such as repetitive drumming. This second order awareness can be developed over time or appear all at once, but once it is discerned the world is never the same. According to shamanic theory the ordinary and non-ordinary worlds interact continuously And a shamanic practitioner can gain knowledge about how to alter ordinary reality by taking direct action in the non-ordinary aspect of the world. So the role of the shaman holds immense importance in developing magical and talismanic practices, particularly when we think about the harsh and unforgiving environments that are ancestors would have lived in they would have lived with you know really bad cold snow and ice for much of the year they would have had to rely on hunting herding livestock fishing and possibly limited agriculture which obviously as we mentioned before kind of developed later on some of them might have settled in in you know forests um, while others would have obviously worked settled down near the oceans um, or followed you know the reindeer across the fields they would have revered the deities and the spirits of their ancestors and the natural world and frequently sought assistance to endure these challenging circumstances the spirits of the plants that they ate and the animals that they hunted would have ensured a reliable food source, so it would make sense to make offerings to those spirits. Water spirits would have also provided fish and clean drinking water. And then obviously fire spirits would also help them to keep warm. And then we also have more the spirits of nature itself. So the sun itself would warm their skin when they were cold. And the moon would guide their sense of time. And then the land spirits also aiding navigation. And during the ice age, individuals with a powerful connection to the spirits would have, you know, taken on this role as being this, this intermediary, and these would have been the shamans, and they would have explored these spirits and made notes about things, um, you know, possibly drawing on the, on the caves as well with the kind of magical images, and through this we get this kind of development from that perspective. A good example of the shaman's role can be seen in Siberia where the shaman would utilize a drum and a robe that's made from the hide of an animal that would be spiritually connected to them and these kind of magical talismanic tools hold great significance. The drum would be crafted from wood sourced from the world tree and the robe adorned with magical figures was also consecrated through sacred songs and rituals. And these tools would have acted as the shaman's kind of primary in- instrument during their journeys into the spirit world, acting as vehicles and empowering them for flight. And when the owner of these talisman manic tools passed away, they would also be buried alongside the owner's body in a resting place as well and the ancients believed that these items retained their charge power infinitely and could harm anyone unprepared to handle them so i just wanted to talk a little bit about some some potential examples of magical talismans and amulets from this period as well Um, one particular uh discovery is that of a 5000 500 year old Neolithic cranial amulets. So in 1914, uh, the Swiss amateur archaeologist Ernest Roulan unearthed two rare amulets which were crafted from fragments of human cranium dating back to the Neolithic period around 3500 BC. And These are kind of, I'll I'll share some pictures of some of these in the actual show notes, but these are kind of oval-shaped amulets that kind of feature perforations on one end uh, that indicate that possibly they might have been worn as necklaces. Um, And similar pendants have also been found in Switzerland and other locations. And archaeologists have proposed that these cranial fragments may have been removed from the deceased, polished and perforated to create pendants, uh, potentially to seek strength or protection from the the dead ancestors or to possibly commemorate past community members as well. Um, So this kind of feeds into this concept that the amulet served as a means of connecting with the pound strength of ancestors, Um, particularly if you think about the idea of the skull being seen as a repository of the soul or a source of spiritual power. Um, Daniel F. Maris discusses the magical significance of the head in his book Magical Amulets in the 1st millennium AD Mediterranean world when he says the following Cranial amulets made from human skulls or skull fragments were among the most powerful and enigmatic magical objects of the ancient world. Believed to possess inherent magical properties, cranial amulets were used for various purposes including protection, healing and divination. Some were even believed to be capable of conferring supernatural abilities on their wearers. Cranial amulets were widespread in the ancient Mediterranean world and examples have been found from Egypt to Greece to Italy although their exact function varied from culture to culture they were always seen as potent magical objects with the power to protect and transform those who wore them and this quote highlights the role of cranial amulets in ancestor worship within neolithic cultures and they suggest that the you know the use of cranial amulets reflected this belief in the power of the amulets and by wearing such an amulet the wearer is believed to be communing with the spirits of their ancestors and also receiving their protection and one exciting crossover between the use of the cranial abnett and magical belief is the similarity similarity to the idea of fire in the head which is a concept that comes from Celtic mythology And I'll talk about that briefly, but in Celtic mythology, the head holds significant magical symbolism as the seat for the soul. And the concept of the fire in the head represents a spiritual fire that could be kindled within an individual through meditation, through prayer, through ritual and other spiritual disciplines. This inner fire is believed to induce uh, altered states of consciousness which lead to heightened creativity, insight and intuition. And it's associated with the Celtic god Lu, I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, or it might be Chlu, who was believed to bestow knowledge, um, you know, poetic inspiration and prophetic understanding upon those who experienced it. And The notion of the fire in the head also closely aligns with the Celtic bardic tradition, where bards, uh, and when I say bards, essentially they were kind of like musicians who would travel around, um, essentially sort of singing the history of the culture and kind of the folk tales, but it would all be an oral tradition, so it would be things that they'd memorised, and then they would kind of pass these, these kind of magical stories on. The bards were said to be able to access this spiritual fire which enabled them to have this kind of divine inspiration to compose poetry, music and other artistic expressions. An original Celtic mythological sources contain several references to fire in the head. One of the most renowned references can be found in the Irish poem the Battle of mag tur I might be pronouncing that wrong and this epic basically recounts the legendary clash between the Tuatha de Danan, uh, a group of supernatural kind of gods and the Fomorians who were uh, another kind of semi-divine group and in the poem the Song of Amagin the idea of the fire in the head is expressed as follows. I am the wind on the sea, I am the wave of the sea. I am the bull of seven battles, I am the eagle on the rock. I am a flash from the sun, I am the most beautiful of plants. I am a strong wild boar, I am a salmon in the water. I am a lake in the plain, I am the word of knowledge, I am the head of the spear in battle. I am the god that puts fire in the head whose light spreads in the gathering on the hills who can tell the ages of the moon who can tell where the place where the sun rests another example of fire in the head in celtic mythology comes from the welsh story of Cullwych and Olwen which features the hero Cullwych and his quest to win the hand of the beautiful Olwen, And in the story, the bard, Taliesin, describes his poetic inspiration as a kind of fire in the head when he says the following, I am a wonder whose origin is not known, for I am Taliesin, radiant browed, who has traveled through countries and languages as the liberator of the poem and the one who inspires the fire in the head. So if we take this idea of the fire in the head, you know, one possible interpretation of the skull amulet is that it represents the skull as being the brain's container where the fire in the head is believed to reside. So thus wearing the skull amulet may have been seen as a way of harnessing the fire in the head and accessing its mystical properties for protection or inspiration. Also, skull amulets are also associated with the idea of del- death and rebirth which is another big theme in Celtic mythology. Uh, the skull represented the physical body returning to the earth while the fire in the head represents the eternal spirit or the soul that continues to exist beyond death. John Matthews writes about this in his excellent book The Celtic Shaman when he writes, the fire in the head was a recognised phenomena among the ancient Celts, an altered state of consciousness in which the poet or visionary could perceive otherworldly truths. This was the source of poetic inspiration and prophecy, and those who were able to enter into this state were revered for their wisdom and insight. The fire in the head was associated with the god Clu who is said to have flames emanating from his brow. The poet or seer who experienced this state was said to have been touched by Lou's flame and gained access to the divine realms. In this state the visionary could see beyond the veil of everyday reality and communicate with the gods and spirits of the other world. The fire in the head was a powerful force and those who possessed it were held in high regard by their communities. It was a gift that could not be taught. But was instead granted by the gods themselves. That's a quote from John Matthews, the Celtic shaman. One of the cool things about the fire on the head idea is that it appears to have uh, it appears to be a visionary state that could not be taught, but was almost granted by the gods themselves, which almost goes back to this idea of the the shamans were kind of born to be a shaman. Um, another interesting artifact from this period is Otzi, the Iceman, who's also known as Similaun Man. And this was a quite an interesting archaeological discovery from the Neolithic period. Uh, his well-preserved remains were found in the Otzel Alps, on the border between Austria and Italy. And Otzi is a man who was meant to have lived around 3300 BC. So it makes his body one of the oldest and most well-preserved examples of a prehistoric person ever found. Uh, But the interesting thing was that the cold and dry dry conditions of the glacier basically mummified his body, preserving the skin, hair, and also some of the internal organs. And they also found various different artefacts with him. So there was clothing, there was tools... Um, and weapons um, but they also found an interesting amulet uh, on his person which was like a red deer tooth worn as a pendant on a leather thong around his neck and Although we don't know you know hundred percent what this would have meant um it's likely it would have had some kind of symbolic or magical um significance for arty um possibly being seen as a way of aiding him in hunting or other activities. As well as the amulet of Otzi, there's also other, other examples of ancient amulets. So we've, we've got things like fossilised sea urchins that we have been discovered in various different European and Mediterranean sites from the Bronze Age. And again these would have likely had a sort of protective or symbolic significance to them often these amulets have holes through them where they would have strung them together um, onto a necklace or cords and may have been used to protect people against drowning or possibly to promote things like fertility um, as well the upper paleolithic period also sees the creation of what's called the Venus figurines, which are small, small statuettes, really, of women with um, quite exaggerated features. And these figurines are believed to promote fertility and childbirth, and pro- possibly act as amulets um, in these ancient societies in terms of bringing through that power. Their significance lies in the connection between obviously the feminine the fertility and the sacredness of life we also have similar ones as well so there's a a artifact known as the hofels phallus which is a carved stone phallus dating back approximately twenty eight thousand years old so this is really old discovered in germany and this is like a highly polished sacred object with rings likely symbolizing again this fertility uh, and life. So all of these talismans and amulets kind of give us a really good glimpse into some of the beliefs and practices of our ancestors and their connection with nature, their reverence for fertility and life. Another interesting point is hunting magic as well. This, this is a really intriguing idea associated with early talismanic objects as we mentioned before otzi the Iceman had like a, a deer tooth around his neck when he was found but it's been suggested that the shamans as i mentioned before acted as psychopomps they go between the worlds for their tribes and it's possible they may have been able to influence the animals they wish to hunt through the practice of sympathetic magic and some people have suggested the images that you see carved on the on some of the caves um, are evidence of this kind of sympathetic magic uh, process. However, if we look at the actual cave drawings themselves and the paintings, um, many of the animals depicted are not kind of primary food sources for these peoples. So, it's likely that these images would more likely have been serving as focal points for shamans to travel into the spirit world seek the spirits of the desired game and maybe try and like negotiate success for the hunters so kind of contacting the group soul of the you know the animals that they were aiming to hunt this idea is expressed well by the author Carlos Gallinger um, when he writes the following: The ancient hunter could recognise or believe that the deer he killed had a spirit. This spirit might belong to a collective spirit of nature, or more likely the spirit of the great deer. People would pray to these collective animal deities, like the great deer or the great buffalo, or have the shaman do rituals to please them, thus convincing the animal deity to give of itself let the hunter take one of his kind for nourishment. One example of such sort of magical images takes us back to 6000 BC to there's a place in Syria called Abu Haraya uh, which is worth visiting but there there's a pebble that was carved into the shape of a gazelle's head and neck Um, It's very small, it's like 3.7 centimetres high Um, but you can see the actual animal's eyes and traces of its horns as well. And this kind of suggests a connection to this kind of migratory species that would have roamed the Middle East um, during that period and would have been home to hunters and obviously gazelle meat would have been a really crucial role in their sustenance. Um, So possible that this might have been connected like that in terms of a talisman or an amulet to kind of draw draw these animals towards you another similar artifact from the same region dating to around 6500 BC which is a boulder depicting four figures in ceremonial headgear armed with spears and bows seemingly dancing and We think hunters might have created these images to pass the time while awaiting the appearance of the gazelles. Um, Or alternatively, it could also be a magical, um, symbolic object that, that they did for successful and success in hunting. By depicting themselves alongside the gazelles, the hunters may have felt better prepared and gaining a much greater sense of control and success over the hunt so in conclusion as I mentioned there's not, there's no kind of written evidence regarding what our ancestors were doing at this particular period so a lot of this is kind of speculation um, and kind of looking back from that perspective but as I mentioned there are some interesting archaeological findings that you, know, you can kind of look at and think maybe that was what they were doing the main thing is obviously you know these, these people were living in very treacherous difficult times and they would have worked very closely with with nature because they relied on nature to to survive much more so than you know we do um these days um and i think t- from a magical perspective t- if we're going to have success in forging and, and creating uh talismans and amulets it's almost good to embrace that mindset again, to forge a connection with the spirits that surround us and are within us, and allow that flow of divine energy into the objects we create. That's all we have time for in this episode. However, in the next episode, we will be continuing our discussion on the history of magical talismans and amulets by looking at the magical traditions of ancient Egypt So if you have enjoyed this episode and want to find out more, then please stay tuned. I'd like to finish this episode with a poem called The Mistress of Scarabray by the poet Morris Reynolds that goes as follows. Old Neolithic hunter, take the trail ahead. Carry your daughter beyond the ring of Brodgar to the lands of the dead. Young Huntress spear in her heart, piercing her last breath, look up to the rain, call up to the ancestors the call of her death. From the darkest depths of the lock of Stenes they will come, from the burial mounds they will come, from the standing stones they will come when her cycle has begun long dead ancestors carrying fire ceremonial torches trailing a path of white lights across the night sky her bones will rise when the sun is high winter will be soon her spirit will dance beneath its coldest moon they will shout they will scream eyes rolled back in a waking dream is it god or gods, or a ceremonial sacrifice balancing the odds. A hundred human voices calling up into the black, a thousand celestial voices calling back, at the echo of the drumbeat to May Show in the Bay of Scale. They will retreat beneath the stone circle. They will retreat back into the earth. They will retreat when her cycle is complete. Old Neolithic hunter, close your eyes, you will see her beyond your sacred land, through the mists and the rain, running across the sky, spear in hand, hunting once again.